to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Romans chapter 7, where we'll be continuing in our series through the book of Romans. If you're using the Pew Bible, the passage can be found on page 943. And we pray that you would, uh, or, sorry, still in prayer mode. Um, draw your attention to beginning in verse 13. And we'll read through verse 25, which is through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is God's word. May he bless to us the preaching of it. I want to start this morning to talk about uh, the foundation for our struggle against sin as believers. And then we'll talk about that lack of foundation that is, or, or the, yeah, the absence of such a foundation here in chapter 7. And then at the end, I want to try to tie it in with how this particularly applies to us as believers. But the first thing that just in general in the, in the scriptures, the foundation, or you might call it the context for our struggle or the atmosphere of our struggle, um, because it is so important that we have that foundation. Uh, struggle is 
apparent for every one of us. If, if you're a true Christian, you're really, really wanting to be, of course, you don't want perfectly, but and that's part of our problem is that we don't even desire what we should like we should. But our, our basic struggle is I want to be rid of my sin more and more. I want to be more like Christ. I want to manifest the character of Christ. I, I want to get rid of all those destructive things in my life. That's the fundamental grip that any Christian is in. But the way the, uh, this, and, and it is, it, at our best, it's a titanic struggle. At our best, uh, we are dying in this struggle. It is so difficult. It's so hard to dig into our lives and find out all the motivations that we have. That's why in the very psalm that we sang this morning in Psalm 139, Lord, search me and know me and see if there be any hurtful way in me. I don't even know why I do the things I do. I don't know why, how that came out. What's driving me? Why do I hold on to this sin so much? Why do I think like I do? Why am I so bound as I, I seem to be bound? These are things that if you're really struggling, if you're really desiring to do His will, those are the kinds of things that happen in your life. But I want to underscore that the no matter how tough the struggle, how bad the struggle, the perspective that's given in Scripture is always from the new life that we have in Christ. It's always the perspective. And in fact, you won't find the Scripture, you won't find the Gospel coming to you and saying, hey, you just need to be different. I'm reminded of, you've heard the, maybe seen this or heard it, the Bob Newhart, uh, when he's counseling, He's, he's doing a caricature of counseling. And some lady just pours her heart out to him and just tells him all about these difficult things she's going through. And he says, well, stop it. And she's kind of taken back. She says, well, that's the problem. I'm, well, just stop it. And he just says that over and over and over again. Just stop it, stop it, stop it. And I think for many of us, that's kind of how we think the gospel is. That's all that, that, that's the gospel. It's just a law to us. Just stop it. Start this, stop it. You know, that's it. Emphatically, that is not what the gospel does. The gospel, as Paul lays it out in Romans, begins with a, a critique of humanity that's devastating, that tells us we are under condemnation, we are under guilt, we are helplessly bound in sin. We've got to have a Redeemer. We've got to have God Himself to rescue us. Nothing less than the rescue of the God who made heaven and earth will get us out of our situation. That's the thing that's set forth in the gospel. Not that you've got some resident ability and you just got to activate it and get going here, you know. No, you're, you're helpless. God must rescue you. And so, as we've seen in Romans 6, uh, as he commands us not to present our members to sin, that's undergirded by the fact that you have been united with Christ. You've died to your old life. You've been raised to a new life. You must consider yourself dead to sin. Sin will not have dominion over you. You've been rescued from this in that context, in your new redeemed state as being one alive from the dead. Yes, present yourself before God. Same thing in Romans 12, the famous passage where it says, uh, let us present ourselves before God. He says, as a living sacrifice. That means as one who's been made alive. 
You even give yourself up to God with the knowledge, I've been made alive by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that condition, I give myself up to God. And so it's in the context of of power, of a new creation, of faith, of the gospel, of the Spirit. It's in the context of growth, of progress. Like 2 Corinthians 3 says that, We all are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and we're being transformed from glory to glory in words that are hard to imagine, aren't they? You're describing my life as progressing from glory to glory in this life? That something of the glory of God is taking on, is is in my life because of the new covenant? Yes. Well, I would say to you that This is all missing in this passage. All missing in this passage. And so the the general foundation uh, for change in Scripture of the gospel and our new creation and God's mighty power working in us, even though it will still be a titanic struggle, such as Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 9 where he says, I beat myself till I'm black and blue. I'm boxing, I'm fighting, I'm wrestling. These are words always that have to do with the greatest struggle, the, the uh, expulsion of, every, of all of our energy to, to be engaged in this. But it's always in the context. I'm always in Christ and Christ is strengthening me. And he can say something like that in Philippians 4. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amazing statements. Well, this I here can't do anything. (laughs) He has no obedience whatsoever. He wants to. He wants to do the right thing. He even recognizes it's the right thing. He sees the goodness of the law. But as a categorical way of life, he is under sin. He is never obedient. He does not give himself to this word. Whatever he thinks about it, He does not give himself to it. And so, turning then from the general foundation of our union with Christ and the death and resurrection of Christ and the filling of the Spirit and the power of God enabling us to live a new life, as Paul prays in Ephesians 1, I I, I pray that you will know the exceeding greatness of the power uh, that is yours in Christ Jesus. Well, none of those terms are here, that they're all absent. In this passage, I'm of the flesh, I'm sold under sin, I cannot do what is right, I never do the good that I want, I always am doing evil, this defines me and marks me. Sin uh, completely dominates me. When he says it's no longer I but sin, it's just a way to say how pathetic my situation, that sin has invaded and completely taken over the house. I am not master anymore of my condition. My sin totally dominates me. My approval of the law means nothing concerning obedience because for all my desiring, I'm still captive to this principle of sin that dwells in my whole self. It dwells in all of my human capacities, as he says, my members. I actually serve. That's the word for a slave. I'm the slave of this power of sin. This is a body of death and I'm headed for death. I need deliverance. That's the flavor, isn't it, of, of this 
passage. Let's look at just a few terms and uh, then we'll go to some application. As he gets to verse uh, 14, he says, The law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. There's an opposition between the nature of the law and my nature. It's spiritual. It has to do with the Holy Spirit. I am not. I have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. I'm of the flesh. Uh, He would not call, you know, this person is not what we'd say a saint. Up above the law is holy. That's the same word for uh, a saint. But God constantly calls us the holy ones, the holy ones, the holy ones. We've been separated unto God. And yet he says, this is not me. I'm not spiritual. I'm of the flesh. And as one commentator says, this fleshly state is an invincible obstacle to the fulfillment of the law. And the flesh embraces everything that is opposed to God. Uh, and and, and it, it involves the whole human person. And so Paul feels his natural self controlled by the flesh His whole self is controlled by seeking self-satisfaction. That's entirely against the word which demands self-consecration, you see. I'm totally different than that, he says. The law is spiritual and it demands the greatest of you laying out yourself for others, self-consecration, but I'm of the flesh. It's (laughs) self-preservation, self-protection. Self-satisfaction. I'm of the flesh. And this knowledge that I have of the spirituality of the law means nothing about obeying it. It means nothing about obeying it. You might say that the condition the law finds uh, us in, as stated in verses 7 through 12, it finds us diseased and it leaves us diseased. The law does nothing to change us. It tells us what we aren't. It shows us how sinful we are. As he says in verse 13, that sin might be shown to be sin, that it might become sinful beyond measure. The law shows us just the awful extent of our sin. But as he goes on to describe uh, the state that we're in in verses 14 and following, we see it does us no good because of our sin. He says also in verse 14, I'm sold under sin. That's worse than if you said sold to sin. But this includes the idea of the shameful state of servitude to that sin. I'm sold into a shameful, a disgraceful state of serving this sin. So you might say that the seller is the flesh... I'm of the flesh, and it, the buyer who has become my master is sin. It's a fatal contract. It's taken effect on us so that our passions have given over to the will of the power of sin. It is now our master, he says. It is our master. And like any slave, he says in verse, that's what flows from verse 15. This is the proof of the slavery. Slaves don't really understand everything they're doing. They just do what their master tells us to do. He says, I can hardly even understand myself. I understand what I do. Like he's driven by blind instinct at times. He just drags him along as without his knowledge. And when he sees it, he realizes, that's not what I wanted to do, but I did it. 
terrible, frightening condition. And so the, the wishing or the, the desiring of the law is nothing but a wish. I, I should like to do that, but I don't. I, I wish I could, but I don't as, as a way of life. I just don't. And so when Paul says in verse 16, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. It's no longer I who do it, do it but sin that dwells within me. He's not excusing himself at all. He's just saying, look at the miserable state of bondage. I'm, as uh, Godet says, he's not master even in his own house. He finds there a tyrant who forces him to act in opposition to his better wishes. What humiliation, what misery. And so it's looking at the painful state of our slavery that we don't even have control of our life because our sin dominates us. Our sin controls us. And so, as it talks about the uh, captivity uh, of sin, or s- similar to be under sin, and to be slow, uh, sold into sin, is tied in with verse 23 where he says that uh, I'm captive to the law of sin that is in me. And it's as though there's this prize uh, verse 23, and, and ego, I am the prize, and there are two that are warring for the ego. This the law of my mind, and then the law of sin that dwells within me. But the law of sin is the one that always wins. I'm always dragged captive into that uh, way. That's the ordinary result of this contest. Sin controls me. Sin controls me. And we're reminded then of earlier in verse, uh, 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 chapter 7, verse 6, where he talked about being held captive when we were unbelievers. Or Second uh, Timothy 2.26 talks about the, the enemy, the, the devil holding us captive, uh, those who are unrepentant. And so there's a captivity in sin. There's a bondage in sin. And we don't have the will. We, we, we have the desire, but we don't have the will to change. He even says, there is no good in me that is in my flesh. And, and that would mean there is no power to do good in my flesh. There's no power to do any good in me, however I may regard the law. And as he says in my flesh, it basically means there's no power in me. This one who is alienated from God, this one who has fallen, there is no capacity for me to do good. And it's interesting, uh, addicts many times say, I want to do the right thing. But I don't think we would call them free. And that's why many times this passage is thought to be talking about believers simply because of the one thing that he says, well, I I delight in the law. But we find, especially as this is probably a picture of Paul, and moreover, it's a picture of Israel and their, you know, love affair with the law or outwardly saying they, they love the law. In fact, one commentator says Paul would just like to wrap himself, as a Pharisee, just wrap himself up in the law like a cloak. He loved it so much. But as now as he's a Christian looking back on his life, he sees, I didn't obey it. I never obeyed it. I really wasn't. It really never had my heart. I wanted it. I liked it. But I didn't obey it. 
Um, and so uh, here is, I think, a fatal problem of, of trying to apply this to a, a believer. And you, you think about this, uh, what if your husband had verbally abused you for several years? What comfort do you take in his saying, look, I delight in doing the right thing. I really do. I delight in speaking good words to you. It's just that I don't do it. You think, well, that isn't worth anything, you know. Really, nothing. If you don't change, if you don't speak kind words to me, what does it matter to me what you like or don't like? What does that mean? And so in this passage, we see, we see a, a person uh, depicted, the, the eye is just divided up, torn to pieces. There's no continuity, there's no unity in his life. Uh, and certainly, at every point, there's no accomplishment of good. There's only disobedience. There's no obedience at all here. Now, some would say, and, and here is the difficult part, because is there anybody here that doesn't feel some association with what is said here? I mean, I imagine all of us do. You say, well, I've had those times where I wanted to do something and I didn't do it. Well, yeah, of course. And as Godet talks about this, he says, in describing our life beforehand, there's no way we can ever be totally separate from that because we're not perfected. And so there's a, there is some continuity here in terms of, yes, this struggle occurs in our lives, but this isn't the context for our struggle. We're made new in Christ and we're calling upon Christ and living out the new life we have in Christ. And we're thinking of passages like this, uh, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, that's not the context here, obviously. It's a whole different world of, of failure and, and uh, this treadmill of sin. That radically broken then in chapter 8, after talking about this law of sin that dwells in me and serving this law of sin that dwells in me, he says, now God has set you free from that law of sin. Well, I don't think he's saying you formerly fleshly Christian, now he's set you free. I think he's saying to you know, those who are unbelieving and those who are lost in, in sin, he has set you free from that sin. And now we return to the kind of language of chapter 6 that speaks about our liberty uh, from sin. For instance, talking about that continuity and how we, we feel some of this, uh, if, <clears throat> say, a man is an unbeliever and you strike up a conversation and a friendship and eventually he shares with you his struggle with lust. Say you've been a believer 18 years. I imagine not one of you would say, you know, I um, hardly even know what you're talking about. I mean, I think I remember before 18 years ago that, uh, you know, lusting some, but I just haven't done it. I just don't know what you're talking about. No, you'd probably even say, yeah, I still have some struggle and it's changed in my life. It's changed radically. But you'd be able to identify with some of the struggle that he has, or if it's with anger, or if it's not treating your wife as you should, or your children, we're all, there's always this continuity, but it's not this context of that's all I do, I only desire, I never obey. That's not the sense anywhere in Scripture. So, just because we identify with it some, uh, 
doesn't mean that that's what it's describing. In fact, some have even said that this describes the mature Christian, the regular mature Christian uh, and his, his struggle. Um, well, I won't go further into that, but um, let's talk just a little then at the end here of how uh, to apply this in our lives. One thing, and, and at first this seems like, well, why, why do we have to bring up these you know, seemingly obtuse things that Paul is doing here? But uh, uh, bear with me, I think it will have a, a, a bigger impact on us. As we've said earlier, in verses 7 and following, Paul talks about encountering the law. We think that Paul, by using the word I, it's kind of a rhetorical device. It's a device for bringing us into the experience of it. But that he's describing, in many ways here, the life of Israel under the law. Okay, But he's describing it in terms of the I, so that... Uh, and in fact, this really would have an effect on Jewish people that are hearing it. You have to remember, he's always been proclaiming this gospel among the Jews. And so he particularly, even here, is trying to drive home this point to the Jews. You can't be saved by the law. You can't be transformed by the law. You must be transformed by Jesus Christ. You must be transformed by the Spirit of God. And so in this graphic way... To speak first in the past tense, as he says, I, verses 7 through 12. But then in verse 14, the present tense. That draws him in even further. But he's talking here about Israel. And what's fascinating, if you had a map of sin all over the world, let's say it's not a weather map, and you know on the weather maps, the real red parts are the parts where the storm is the, the, the worst, Imagine a map of the whole world, and, and of course the whole world is covered in the conflict of sin. You see the storms everywhere, but you see this one bright, bright red spot that obviously is, is brighter than any other place in the world. And you say, well, where's that? And you look at it, and it's, it's Israel. Israel. How could that be? This is the people of God. How could it be so? But, but that's what he says in chapter 5. He says, when the law came, it came to increase the trespass. The reason that sin is so great there is that's where the law came. That's where the law came. That's where the law manifested the greatness of sin. That's where it became clear that we rebel against God at every point. And remember what we've said, Israel simply represented humanity. That's why there are uh, pictures in what Paul has said in this chapter that bring to mind Adam and Eve. And so he's saying, Israel, you've fallen into sin just like Adam did. There are other indications that he may be referring to Cain, say in verse 21, when he talks about this evil lies close at hand. And so he may be even saying to Israel, Israel, you're like Adam and you're like Cain. Don't you see? You're just as bad as the rest of humanity. In fact, the law has shown that how bad humanity is. And so, as several commentators have pointed, God concentrated sin in this place. Sin is concentrated there because the law came there. 
But how glorious that it was a Jew, it was an Israelite that was born who was perfect and his name is Jesus Christ. It was an Israelite right at the point of the greatest manifestation of sin. And what greater manifestation of sin could there have been that mankind crucifies the very Son of God? But at that very point of the greatest manifestation of sin, there the greatest act of God was being accomplished to save us. And so Paul can say in chapter 5 that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And this shows you and me that you cannot out God's grace. I don't mean that you can't reject God's grace, and, and you may be rejecting His grace now. But what I mean is, there is never a sinful state that is not greater than the grace of God. Grace is greater than all of our sin. Your sin is no match for the matchless grace of Jesus Christ because right where sin was at its worst, that's where God did His work. That's where God saved both those in Israel who would trust in Messiah and the whole world that would trust in Messiah. And so uh, that hymn that says, Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. Wonderful grace of Jesus, reaching the most defiled by its transforming power, making Him God's dear child. Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea. Wonderful grace of Jesus, all sufficient for me, for even me. I love that. For even me, that grace is sufficient. Greater far than all my sin and shame, O magnify the precious name of Jesus. And that's Paul's point, isn't it? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's our hope. There's our sure hope. There, He will deliver us from our sin. He will deliver us from this, will, this, this flesh of mind that will not submit to God's law, that cannot do it. He rescues me because He is the mighty Lord of heaven and earth. And so the scriptures have said he came to redeem us from sin. I love this phrase in our shorter catechism. How does God execute the office of a king? He, ex he executes this office. He carries out his office of a king by subduing us to himself, ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies, including sin and Satan and the world. He conquers all of our enemies. He plunders the enemy and he takes us to himself so that we no longer are under sin. We are no longer slaves of sin. We belong to Jesus Christ. And so he, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are no longer your own. You're bought with a, cry, with a price. As Peter says, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Walk in your new freedom as those redeemed by Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that whatever sin it is that we have, whatever sin patterns that we have, whatever brokenness that we have, whatever helplessness, whatever binding we feel uh, to sin, and, and, and struggle we have with sin, 
We thank you that you are Lord of heaven and earth. And you do progressively, surely set your people free from sin. O Lord, bless us that we will understand all the more in this description that if it's just us going up against a rule, up against even the precious law of God, which demands self-consecration, which demands love of others and love of God, we will only become worse. We are that bad. We need transformation inside out by the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be joined to His death which sets us free from our sin, which sets us free from condemnation and His resurrection, which brings us to new life. O Lord, all the more, may we rejoice in Jesus Christ and cling to Him as our only Savior. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away